read then in Second Peter, Second uh, Peter chapter one, and we'll start again with um, with verse twelve. Second Peter chapter one, verse twelve, and we'll read down to verse twenty-one, and we read in the scripture the following. Peter writes, "Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance." knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy whereunto you do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. And here's our passage, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask and pray that you would give grace as we look into this uh, section of your word. A very important section, Father, and we ask and we pray, Father, that the very Spirit uh, that you used, your Holy Spirit, to inspire the Word might bring illumination to our minds as we look into it. So grant these things, Father. May your Spirit direct us to your Son, whom you have said, he, that He is your beloved Son in whom you are well pleased. So grant these things, Father, we ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, the first thing I want you to understand about this passage of Scripture, verses 20 and 21, is that this passage of Scripture is very, very important for your doctrine of the Scripture. For how you understand the Word of God, this passage is very, is pivotal. As a matter of fact, it is very much related to, to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. These two passages of scriptures, in a very real way, form the basis or the foundation of a doctrine of scripture. And in both of these passages of scripture, what we see is that the biblical writers are giving emphasis to the fact that scriptures do not originate in man. The scriptures are not the product of very religious men, if I can put it this way, on their best day, writing the best things that they ever wrote. But rather the scriptures are the product of God using the instrumentality of man. And that's exactly what Peter is bringing out here. So we're going to really be looking at this passage of scripture as that place in the word of God that gives emphasis and priority to the written scripture that you and I have as a light that shines in a dark place. And so the first thing I want you to see then is what Peter says about the Holy Scriptures. And I want you to notice two things immediately. Number one, I want you to notice their importance. And number two, I want you to notice their designation. Look what Peter says here in verse 20. He says this. He says, knowing this first. And what I want you to see and understand by that is that Peter is giving a very purposeful emphasis on the Scripture. Know this first. Know this above all things. Whatever else you understand, make sure you prioritize this. And that's what Peter is saying about the Word of God. That as we consider the Word of God in this day and age in which we live, we must give priority to the Scripture. 
We're going to see as we develop 2 Peter uh, in, in, in 2 Peter chapter 2 and in 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to see that there are threats that come from within the church and outside of the church that have one goal at the end of the day. And that is essentially to shake you off of faith in Jesus Christ. And whether it's, from, whether it's heresy from within or whether it's scoffing or mocking from without, at the end of the day, Satan's attempt is to shake you off of the word of God, to shake you off of faith in Christ. And so Peter says, knowing this first, above all things, hold on to this. You see, why does he say that? Because it's a light that shines in a dark place. Would a man give up his light in, 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 in the middle of the night in order to walk? Of course he wouldn't. Would a man willingly uh, uh, extinguish a lamp as he walks in an uncertain place? Of course he wouldn't. He would do everything that he could to keep that light shining. And so Peter says, uh, above all things, knowing this first. And then he goes on to, to speak about the scriptures. And notice what he says to them by way of their designation. He says, knowing this first, that, that no prophecy of the scripture... Here is one of the terms that Peter uses to designate the scripture. Earlier, he referred to it as the prophetic word made sure. And one of the things that we tried to develop to some extent last week, I'll pick this up again here today, is this idea that this phrase, the phraseology that Peter is using, really has to do not only with the specifics of prophetic scripture by way of a foretelling of the future, but also includes this idea of what is commonly referred to as a foretelling of proclamation. And so that the scriptures are prophetic not only in their, in their prediction, the scriptures are prophetic in their proclamation. So that when Jesus Christ is set before a dying world, there's an element of prophecy there, proclamation, making known the will of God. This is what the prophets of the Old Testament did, didn't they? Of course, we know that they foretold the uh, the future. But how many times do we see the prophets coming on the scene? And what are they doing? Thus saith the Lord. And And they speak directly to the moment, directly to the situation, directly to the individual. And that's why Peter refers here to the, to the, to the scriptures as a, as a word of prophecy, as the, as the prophetic word made sure. Because what we're seeing here is the scriptures have this foretelling aspect to them where they give emphasis to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we see other designations in the scripture uh, for, uh, uh, for themselves, other designations that the word of God gives in order that we might identify it. <clears throat> and, it, and, and oftentimes, the use of, of terminology is of the loftiest kind. The, the scriptures are called the very oracles of God, the very voice of God speaking to man. It's a, when, when it's, a, when it's, a, when it's a made reference to, it, it's made reference to in such ways as to give it priority. Scripture says... There's Paul in, uh, in the book of Romans and he talks about Abraham and, and asking the question whether or not Abraham was justified before he was circumcised or after he was circumcised. Was he justified by faith alone really is the point that he's making. And what does he say in, in Romans chapter 4 verse 1? What saith the scripture? You see there is this priority, there is this pride of place uh, given to the word of God. And so we see then the scripture has this great significance, this great weight given to it. And there we see by way of its designation. So we've seen here in this first, uh, in this uh, in, in our in our first uh, division of our sermon this morning, we've seen the holy scriptures in their importance or in their priority. The holy scriptures in their designation. One more thing I want you to see about the holy scriptures here, as we see it in this passage of scripture, and that's what I would refer to as their singular voice. Their singular voice. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is essentially this: 
that the scripture, again, is given to us in the 66 books of the Bible, written by over 40 different men. But yet, while they write to us in different circumstances, different natures, we might say, different places, different times, the message of the Bible is one. And we see this over and over again. This is one of the great things. You know, that you can sum up this book in one essential sentence. And that sentence would be this. That the Bible is God's message to humanity of his intention to save sinners through faith in Jesus Christ. You've summed up the Bible in that that one sentence. Why were you able to do that? Because its theme, its message is singular. It has a singular witness to Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ made made this case, didn't he? You remember there he was in John chapter 5, verse 39. And he says to his opponents, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me, he says. You remember last week we took a look at that passage of scripture from Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. That passage of scripture, which again, even in, 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 uh, in, in, in the King James sounds somewhat obscure. Uh, that passage of scripture in Revelation uh, chapter 19, verse 10. John is there and he's, he's kneeling before the angel. And what does the angel say to him? He says, get up. He says, for I am of thy fellow servants. Uh, uh, he says, he says, worship God. He says, for the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. Remember, we tried to explain that a little bit. What is essentially, what is the angel saying to John there? He's saying this, that the emphasis of all the scriptures is the testimony of Jesus Christ. The scriptures point to Christ. That's the point that he's making. The Lord Jesus Christ made this point himself. Take your Bibles and, and just turn to, uh, to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And again, this passage of Scripture, just in, in, in such a short span, contains so much. Luke chapter 24, uh, beginning with verse uh, 44. And again, this is a passage of Scripture. This is a, a, an account of our resurrected Lord. And, and uh, Luke chapter 24, verses 44 and following, the Lord Jesus Christ says this, and he, said, and he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of the prophets, excuse me, which were written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. The Lord Jesus Christ uses the three great divisions of the Old Testament scriptures. The law of Moses, <clears throat> the prophets, and the Psalms. And he says each one of those major divisions, excuse <clears throat> me, each one of those major divisions come to rest on him. He is the focus of all the Old Testament emphasis. He goes on to say this. Look at, and this is very important because we're going we're gonna to see uh, some of this brought out in, in, our, in our sermon here today. Verse 45. Then he opened their understanding that they, that they might understand the scriptures. This is fantastic. Here we have the Lord Jesus Christ illuminating the minds of those who have the scriptures in front of them. That still goes on today. When we speak about the work of the Holy Spirit in our third division of our sermon, we're going to, again, we're going to treat this under three subheadings. Revelation, inspiration, and illumination. Revelation is done. Inspiration is done. Illumination goes on. Oh, that God might show us more truth that he has in his word. And he does that by way of his spirit. He illumines the scripture. This is why you come across a passage of scripture that you read 50 times before. And on that particular day, it was just the passage you needed. The Spirit of God enlightening, the Spirit of God bringing it home to your heart. The Lord Jesus Christ goes on to say, verse 46, 
And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. We read this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1 how did the prophets speak about the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. This is what our Lord Jesus Christ is saying right here. And in verse 47, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his, in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. Isn't that what Peter said? We saw these things on the Holy Mount. And he points us now to the scripture itself. The scripture that testifies of Jesus Christ. The scripture that in their singular voice looks to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter is getting at when he says that no prophecy is of any private interpretation. He's speaking about the singularity of their witness. But he's also speaking about more. And one of the things that I have to do here today is much like last week, I had to spend a little bit of time in fairness to you, if you allow me to say it that way. In fairness to you, I had to spend a little bit of time explaining the different approaches to verse 19. Let me say this, I, 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 don't, I, I don't think that, that I do you any value if, I, if when we come across passages that can be understood in different ways, if I don't explain those differences to you and then make a case for how I understand them. Again, I think this is part and parcel of what I need to be doing as a, as a preacher and teacher of the Word of God. When we come to verses 20 and 21, we're in another one of those kind of situations. We have to do some explaining when we get to these two verses. And the reason why we have to do, uh, do some explaining when we get to these two verses is because these verses have been used in a way that would work against your privilege and right to take the scriptures into your hand and to interpret them. Now, I think, I think you may have heard me say this before, that no Christian group of Christians or institutions has a right to wrongly interpret scripture. Nobody has a right to give to scripture its own meaning, and that touches on not only individuals, but institutions as well. But what we see is that the scripture is always to be kept, the interpretation of scripture is always to be kept in conformity with its overall testimony. And there is a sense in which the overall testimony of the scripture is very clear. It always points to Jesus Christ. So that in its primary category, if an interpretation of Scripture is leading us somewhere other than Christ, then we know that that's not being interpreted in light of what the Scriptures teach. But before I get to that, let's get back to the text itself. And let's take a look at some of the things that we see here. <clears throat> Again, Peter says this, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture, we've explained that, is of any private interpretation. Well, again, as I said before, this has been a matter of some controversy over the years. And because there have been some who have tried to make the case that because of what this passage of Scripture is saying, that nobody has the right to interpret this uh, passage of Scripture apart from the authority, and particularly known in history, the authority of, Roman, of the Roman Catholic Church. That, that the Roman Catholic Church, by way of its institution in their eyes, by way, of, by way of it being instituted of God, again, in their eyes, that gives to them the privilege and the right to determine all interpretation. So that all interpretation has to come through them. So that whatever else the passage you understand it to be saying, if it conflicts with what the Roman Catholic Church is teaching, it is to be discarded. So I would take serious issue with that. I would. And the reason why I would take serious issue with that is because, if I can put it this way, the level of authority, the interpretive grid, so to speak, doesn't go high enough. You see, the interpretive grid of the Scripture is the Scripture itself. 
Let me give you an illustration of this. I think a passage of scripture, again, that oftentimes comes up in a, in a discussion like this is 1 Peter, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses uh, 16 and 17. And uh, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. You may want to turn there. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And again, this is a very foundational passage. And, and we preached from this passage a while back when I preached on the importance of the church. And in this passage of Scripture, Paul says this. In, in uh, verses 15 and 16 of 1 Timothy 3, he says this. He says, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. And he goes on to say in verse 16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in the glory. This is a phenomenal passage of scripture. It really is. What I want you to see is a couple of things. Number one, I want you to see that there is the reality that the church is the pillar and ground of truth. But the church itself is that, the pillar and ground of the truth. It supports something. And the passage tells us what the church supports. It supports the true doctrine and teaching concerning Jesus Christ. Do you notice where Paul goes after he says that the church is the pillar and ground of truth and without controversy great is the mystery of godliness? There's a sense in which if the church is the pillar and excuse me is the ground and pillar and it is, the capstone on that church is the truth about Jesus Christ. And so when we take a look at the scriptures and when we see that no, no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, the idea primarily of what Peter is saying, and we'll get to this here in a, in a minute, is that the scriptures doesn't originate in man. But when we do look at it from an interpretive standpoint, if, the scripture, if this passage of scripture is giving us interpretive principles, it's not that the scriptures are to be interpreted in light of what a particular institution says, but the scriptures are to be interpreted in the light of who Jesus Christ is. Jesus said it himself, Moses, the Psalms, the prophets, speak of me, he says. Angels from heaven say it. The spirit of testimony, excuse me, the, the, the testimony of prophecy is the spirit of Jesus. Jesus himself says it. You search the scriptures and in them you think you have, and, and, and you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me, Jesus says. You see, the emphasis here again is on this idea that the scriptures point to Christ but there's something else that I want you to see here because, again, in one sense, I, I kind of stepped ahead of the flow of thought that we see in this passage of Scripture. Because really what we have to deal with is the question, okay, what does Peter mean when he says no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation? Again, there are questions that have to be dealt with, that we have to deal with here. One of the ways in which this passage of Scripture is, de is dealt with, and, and I do give credence to this, is that the word here that's used for interpretation is a word that can truly be in, can be translated interpretation. Sometimes there's an attempt to move away from this word as meaning interpretation, but in in all fairness and likelihood, that word is valid, valid is, uh, is 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 translated properly by interpretation. But the idea behind it doesn't seem to be that Peter is saying. You do well to take heed to a light that shines in a dark place because the way it's interpreted. Peter really is saying you do well to take heed to a light that shines in a dark place because of its origin. 
And the idea now is that Scripture originates in God and comes from man. So we might say this. The prophetic Scriptures, which speak to us about Jesus Christ, the prophetic Scriptures, which like Peter, like Peter would say, we saw confirmed on the mount, the prophetic Scriptures are God's unloosening. That's another translation of this word interpretation. Are God's interpretation of the facts of human history. It is God's explanation. So that when you see Jesus Christ and you want to know who and what he is, the scriptures tell us who and what he is. The scriptures refer to Jesus Christ, again, as God's only beloved son in whom he is well pleased, his beloved son to whom we must give heed. And so again, there's a sense in which what we're seeing the scriptures uh, teach here, the scriptures, again, are emphasizing the fact that they come from God to man. That's the point that's being made here. <clears throat> so in this, again, as I said before, we see, again, the holy scriptures. We see their priority. We see their designation. And we see their singular voice or their singular witness. They are witnessing to the person of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> well, that's not all that we see in this passage of scripture, though, is it? We see in this passage of Scripture the Holy Scriptures, but we also see holy men. And notice what Peter goes on to say here. He goes on to say in verse 21, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Here we have Peter now giving emphasis not only to the origin of Scripture, but the medium through which Scripture was given to us. Peter says that the Spirit of God used holy men of old. And I want to take a look at just like we looked at Scripture and its designation, I want to take a look at these holy men and their designation. And they're designated as holy. Now, I know in the ESV, <clears throat> it doesn't have the adjective holy there. I think that it should be there. I think for a number of reasons it should be there. I think if for no other reason, when we take a look at what these men did and who they were, it would qualify them as being holy men. Holy in a twofold sense. They were holy by way of their character. If I can put it this way, these were not men who had ulterior motives. Their motive was only to bring glory to God and to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's a sense in which we can say they were holy men by way of their motivation. And their holiness, is, again, is brought out in a number of ways. <clears throat> One writer says this, These were not men that aimed at the ostentation of wisdom and the curiosity of science, but they were holy men, and they were free from ambition and envy and other such vile affections as are wont to make the writers to affect obscurity. And therefore they used simplicity of style, plainness of heart, and faithfulness to their message. And they minded their, their master's honor and his people's good. And so again, these were holy men. We talk, when you take a look at, at, the, at the men that God used, one of the things that we see and understand is that while they were indeed holy men, they were not perfect men, were they? They were not perfect men, but they were holy men. They were not perfect men, but they were men that were used. And aren't you glad to see that on the pages of Scripture, God is able to do that. God is able to use even imperfect vessels to bring about a perfection that is in His Word. Oftentimes, there's been an attack on the doctrine of the, of the, infallibility, of, uh, on the infallibility of Scriptures along these lines. <clears throat> and the idea is something like this. Well, we know that when light shines through a medium, sometimes that light is refracted, sometimes that light is discolored, sometimes that light is not. In other words, coming uh, before it passes through the lens or the glass, it's not the same as what it was before. And so because of that, they asked the question that would go along these lines. How can God give an infallible word through fallible men? And one theologian commenting on this 
described it like this. He says, what if? What if these infallible men were very much like the pieces of a stained glass window that an architect knew that when the sun rose in the east, that there would be certain refractions through the different color lights and the intention that he wanted to have in the atmosphere inside that building was specifically designed through the stained glass. In other words, what the, what the writer was saying was this. Yes, these were flawed men. Yes, these were men of their own personality. Yes, these were men of their own circumstances and time. But let's not forget that the God of providence oversaw these men. And the God of providence used these men. And in all of their difficulties, in all their successes, in all their failures, God was forming these men, coloring these men as it were, so that when they were placed within that stained glass, they give the perfection of God's word. They were just the men that God had intended to use in just a specific way. And so you see this idea of the word of God. Holy men were used, men specifically called. And so what I would say to you then is this. <clears throat> While they were holy men, they were not, they were not flawless men. Some of them had conspicuous faults, did they not? Look at Peter. Look at David. These men were writers of Scripture. Faults. We can point them out. But yet they were men used of God. And while, they, and, while they had, and while all of them had faults, and while some of them had conspicuous faults, I think we can say this. They all had true hearts, did they not? Yes, faults. But thankfully, true hearts. They were true-hearted men giving themselves over and being used by the Spirit of God to, uh, to, to write Scripture for us. So they were holy in their character, but, but more importantly, well, as important, they were holy in their calling as well. Some of you might know from, from any study on, uh, on sanctification, you might know that a thing is holy either by way of its inherent quality or by way of its being set apart for a particular purpose. And again, I've given illustrations of this in the past. Again, we have that platform. Now, that, that, that little pulpit or this pulpit could be used in any kind of setting. But we sanctify it in the sense that we set it apart for a place from which the word of God is to be preached. It's set apart for that purpose. Well, that's what these, that's what these over 40 men were, these 40-some men. They were, they were set apart for a particular purpose. They were set apart for the writing of Scripture, God using them, God ordaining them, God using them to give to us uh, the Scripture that we have. And the point that Peter is making is this, that this word of prophecy is not from them. While they were used, they were not the source of origin. They may have been the organ of, uh, of writing, but they were not the origin of the scriptures themselves. The scriptures come from God. Look again, again here at uh, verse 21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. As I said before, the point of emphasis in this passage of scripture is on the fact that it was not the men who originated the scripture. Look again at the passage. For the, verse 21, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. How does scripture come? It's not by the will of man. But God through his spirit used the instrumentality of holy men to write holy scripture through the work of the Holy Spirit. And I would say this, if the holy scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit and are written by holy men, certainly their aim is to make us holy in all manner of living, is it not? You see, there's a great inconsistency with those of us who would claim to be holy in Christ and yet not live according to what the scriptures call us to live. 
And so may God give us grace to, to live up to this holiness that we see that is a replete uh, concerning the scriptures. Prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Well, now we've seen the holy scriptures, their designation. We've seen holy men, their designation. Now we want to take a look at the Holy Spirit and not so much his designation, but now his operation. And what is the operation of the Spirit of God in regard to the scriptures? Well, as I said before, it is at least th- threefold. Uh, n- number one, it's, it's, that, it's that thing, that, it's, it's that reality that we know as revelation. Number one, that through the Spirit of God, God reveals. What is revelation? Revelation is God's unfolding of his purposes and of his will to lost humanity. Now, you may know that revelation takes place on a number of different levels. There is what we call general revelation, to where God makes himself known in creation and in the conscience of man. Uh, man, by way of nature, by way of design, is a, is a moral creature. He's a moral being. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, unbelieving scientists might like to say something like this: that that man is hardwired for morality, or man is hardwired for religion. Well, it's just a convenient way of saying that God was the man is made in the image of God, who himself is a moral being, and that moral reality is reflected in man as being made in the image of God. But we also see that there is this idea of of, of revelation that we call special revelation. There's general revelation that's available to all men everywhere. Then there's this thing that we know as special revelation. Special revelation is that insight that is given into the moral character of man. Special revelation is that insight that is given into the way that God has ordained in order that sinners might be saved. And special revelation is given to us primarily in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also in the written scriptures themselves. And so when we see the Spirit of God revealing What he is doing is he is unfolding God's way of salvation. And that's why I said earlier, you do well to take heed to the scripture as a light that shines in a dark place at a personal level. Have you heeded this word of salvation? You see, in one sense, it's kind of of strange. We, we, We live in a day where very rarely are people in church unless they want to be there. You know, we're, we don't live in a day where people, you know, that where, the, where the bailiff would maybe, you know, uh, you know uh, call them into account for not being in church on a Sunday. Those type of things used to happen, but not so much now. And so there's a sense in which when I say, have you heeded the word? Have you heeded the word of, uh, of, uh, of the scripture that calls you to faith in Jesus Christ? There's a sense in which I can almost assume that all of you have, but I can't do that. Because I know that, I don't know, I don't know the recesses of your heart, I know the recesses of my heart. And if your heart is anything like mine, you know how shifty we can be. You know how well we can slide and slip a punch from the Spirit of God, if I can put it that way. You understand how that we are, we're very slippery at times. And so I ask you the question again, have you heeded this word of the gospel which calls sinners to repentance? Yes, even good moral sinners. There is such a thing, you know. There is such a thing as good moral sinners. And God even calls them to repentance. Oh, have you heeded this word? But we see here not only uh, revelation, we see inspiration as well. And that's right here on the page of scripture. Look at what we see here in verse 21. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This word moved is kind of an interesting word. It has the idea of being of bearing up. Uh, the, the picture for this word is, is really the picture of a ship on, uh, on the sea that is being moved by the wind. And so the wind is directing it. 
In Acts chapter 25, I think it is, Paul speaks about his, his uh, situation there on the Mediterranean Sea where, the wind, where they were driven by the wind. And that's the picture here. The idea here is this, is that these men were now inspired by the Spirit of God, picked up and moved to write what God had, or, what God had ordained by way of revelation for them to write. So we have revelation, we have inspiration slash inscripturation, the word of God is inscripturated for us. But then thirdly, we have illumination. And illumination, as I said earlier, is that which the Spirit of God is still operating in today. The, the revelation of God by way of special revelation, we believe, is, is closed. That when the Lord Jesus Christ came, it was the fullness of revelation. I like to use the illustration that, that if, I, if I took the, this bottle of water and I filled up this cup and I filled it up very carefully to the very top to where it would just be kind of, um, what is it, what is it, con, con, convex or concave? Con, where, where it's just, where it's just bare, where one more drop would, would, would go over. Well, that's what the revelation that God has given in the scriptures and in the person of Jesus Christ. There is no more fuller revelation than God. When God appears in humanity in the form of a man, what greater revelation of God to man can he make? He has fully revealed himself in the person of his son. That's why we say that special revelation at that, at that level is done. We say that's because special revelation is done. The, 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 uh, the work of inspiration is, is done as well. That the spirit of God is, is not now infallibly in, uh, you know, working and operating in the lives of individuals uh, to, 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 to record in an infallible way uh, the, writing, the, the writing or the teaching of scripture. But illumination goes on. And illumination is vital. And there is a sense in which, as I study the scripture, I have to pray for illumination. There's a sense in which as I preach the word of God, I have to pray that God will illumine the minds of those who hear. And what is illumination? Well, can I make it specific to this passage of scripture? Illumination breaks upon your heart and soul when you see from the scriptures the very reason that you need to take heed to the scriptures because that's what the passage is teaching. Peter says it again in verse 19 in a different way that he says it in verse 20 and 21. But at the end of the day, he's saying the same thing. Oh, take heed to this word. Take heed to this light that shines in a dark place. Use the scripture and evaluate it against every category of, of living, every category of life, family life, professional life, personal life, every category, every category. Am I giving heed to the scripture? It is a light that shines in a dark place. I'm telling you right now, we're going to read and, and learn in chapter 2 that, that there are voices within the church that are going to try and dampen that light. See, this is another one of the things that Peter's doing. Peter, in one sense, is making a case for his apostolic credentials because he's going to deal with false teachers in chapter 2. He's making a case for the reality of what he's talking about because there are scoffers that he's going to talk about in chapter 3. And as I said in the beginning, when it's all said and done, Satan just wants to shake you off your faith in Jesus Christ. And your faith in Jesus Christ is bound up in his word. And so here's Peter. What is he saying to us? Oh, my friend, you do well to take heed to the scripture. You do well to take heed to the scripture which shines in a dark place. And when, you're, when family, friends, enemies, opponents, whatever, when they try to move you away from scripture, understand, don't forget what Peter is saying. You do well to take heed. My brothers and my sisters, what a day that will be when we stand before our Lord Jesus Christ, the one in whom the Father delights. 
And we, by his grace, would hear him say, you've taken heed to my word. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Oh, may that be the lot of every one of us here today. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank you for your word. And while, Lord God, there are these passages that we have to explain and passages that we have to understand rightly, and again, Father, we thank you even for that because it it makes us, uh, again, Lord, to be more uh, 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 better students of of your word. Uh, But yet, Father, when it's all said and done, the the one point that is certainly clear to us in this passage is that we must give heed to your word. So, Father, grant that we would heed it, grant that we would obey it, grant, Lord God, that you would be pleased in all that we do and in all that you enable us to do as we attempt in this world to give glory to your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.